B team takes over freelancers. <laughs> Ruben just does it so naturally in Chuck's absence. I know. We're like two monkeys banging rocks together. <laughs> This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Hired.com is offering a new freelancing and contracting offering. They have multiple companies that will provide you with contract opportunities. They cover all the tracking, reporting, and billing for you. They handle all the collections and prefund your paycheck. They offer legal, accounting, and tax support. And they'll give you $1,000 when you've been on a contract for 90 days. But with this link, they'll double it to $2,000 instead. Go sign up at Hired.com slash Freelancer Show. This week's episode of The Freelancer Show is brought to you by Earth Class Mail. Earth Class Mail moves your stamp mail into the cloud, giving you instant access 24-7 and integrates with the tools and services you use every day. It's crazy that we've moved everything we do for the business over to the digital world, but still need to pick up, sort, and manage physical mail. With Earth Class Mail, you can get all of your mail scanned and accessible online 24-7. You can search your mail, send invoices over to your accounting software, sync important documents into cloud storage, deposit checks, and really just make running your business a whole lot easier. You also get real professional address to share publicly with customers, business partners, and investors. And you'll never need to worry about someone showing up at your door if you run your business from home. Now, I've checked out Earth Class Mail, and I think it's a brilliant solution that's perfect for businesses and independent entrepreneurs of all types. Visit freelancershow.com slash mail, and you'll get your first month of service free when you sign up. That's freelancershow.com slash mail. Hello, and welcome to episode 211 of The Freelancer Show. Chuck is on vacation. Ruben is busy, and so this episode is brought to you by the B-Team, myself, <laughs> Philip Morgan, and Jonathan Stark. Hello. So we thought, since both Jonathan and I run, I run a mentoring program, and Jonathan runs a coaching program, and we therefore get a lot of questions that are really interesting, excellent questions about freelancing and consulting. We thought we'd compile our uh, maybe most frequently asked questions and just sort of alternate talking through those. So why don't we start with you, Jonathan, if that's sure. okay. I'm going to read your first question. How do you calculate a value price? Great question. <laughs> <laughs> I get this all the time because I am super anti-hourly billing. I think it's bad for everybody involved with a software project. So if you do things like software projects and you're billing by the hour and you are sort of drinking my Kool-Aid, the first thing that you start to forget about is how do you actually calculate a value price? How is it different than a regular fixed bid? That sort of thing. So what I tell people to do, the sort of long story is that you need to have a value conversation with the prospect very early, you know, before you do a proposal and keep, I call it a why conversation. You keep asking them why, 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 why they want you to do the things that they asked you to get on the phone and talk about. And eventually you'll get down to some sort of root cause motivation that is either some kind of pain that they need solved or some sort of opportunity they want to take advantage of. And you can start to get a back of the napkin calculation of how valuable that might be to the business. So it's especially easy if it's a cost that you would be removing or an expense that you'd be removing. It's a little trickier when it's uh, an opportunity that they want to capture, but you can get an order of magnitude feel for it. So once you have that, I give sort of newbies a crutch to use. It's a formula, which you probably, not probably, you definitely shouldn't use as you get better at this, but it's a helpful crutch at the beginning where once you have a rough idea of the value, you can calculate a price by taking uh, the maximum of your cost for the engagement versus 
the value that you're guessing at more or less divided by 10. And so that what that looks like is, you know, P equals max C comma 10 divided by B, V divided by 10, sorry, close paren. Anyway, podcast, we're reading code on the podcast now. (laughs) But anyway, I call it the magic formula and it is a crutch, but it gives you something to go on and uh, it does a couple of things. One, it keeps your, assuming that the value divided by 10 is greater than your costs, then it will probably increase the amount of money you would set for the price. If it's below, if the value divided by 10 is below your cost, in other words, your cost is higher than a tenth of their value, then this formula prevents you from basically putting yourself in a negative ROI situation where you're doing the job for less than it costs you to do the job. As you get better at this, you really should ignore your costs. And it becomes very simple to ignore your costs later on because the value is so incredibly high for, you know, if you're doing much more high value things that have a very low cost of implementation for you, it becomes irrelevant to calculate your costs anyway. But uh, when you're first starting out, I always feel like I'm giving people a loaded gun when I try and get them to switch from hourly to value. So I give them that formula to help them over the hump. Do you see any kind of patterns where a certain kind of project is is almost guaranteed to have that negative ROI or just or not be something that you can value price? There are some things that are horrible for value pricing that just don't fit. That you mm-hmm. can't value price everything. Mm-hmm. If someone really just needs a pair of hands to fix their Mailchimp, change the way Mandrel works, and now the the SaaS is broken because it can't send the password reset emails. They just want a thing done quickly and they're not going to be in the mood to have a, you know, why do you want that fixed? Like, just fix it, (laughs) you know, and they will easily find someone who will just fix it. It would be hard to imagine a situation where you could differentiate yourself there and be like the go to person in the whole wide world for fixing MailChimp when it breaks, at least that particular situation when like an API goes south. That's Uh, really what Upwork is for, right? (laughs) Yeah, that's the use case for Upwork. Exactly. Yeah. So I, th- I think some things, you know, it's like if you want your toilet unclogged, it's, it's just like get in here and please unclog the toilet. But if you're designing a new addition for your house, then all of a sudden more subtle things start to matter. Why you put in the addition on is it because you're planning on, you know, having more kids. Is it because you need to put an office out there? You know, all, there all these why questions can happen. It's, there's no why question for why do you want ma- the MailChimp API fixed? Mm-hmm. It's because it's not sending email and we're losing business like right now theoretically you could give somebody a value price for that, but it's such a commoditized form of labor that they'll easily find someone to undercut you. So it's kind of a junk job basically. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I I guess I want to ask the contrary question. Are there places where people new to this might start looking you know, situations that are really amenable to value pricing? I mean, I, I don't think we can construct some template for it, but are there places that are just kind of likely suspects where value pricing really works? I think so. I, my, I haven't thought about this, but my first reaction to your question was anything that's risky. Mm-hmm. So in a situation where people, there's just a lot of unknowns and, and people are wading into new territory, it, that's a cer- certainly a common denominator with the work that I've done for the past 10 years is that it's always a risky proposition. Mm-hmm. It's a, an entire website rebuild of an existing site or, you know, something like that. There's like a million moving pieces. They're perhaps outsourcing to a variety of companies. They need somebody who knows what's going on to translate uh, literally and figuratively between offshore dev teams and um, business units. And I, I would say the risk is a common denominator there. Hmm. 
Interesting. So are there are there cases where, I mean, my takeaway from the formula was you're kind of going for a 10x ROI for the client at, yes. at a minimum. Mm-hmm. Are there cases where it's just astronomically higher? I would say so, especially if you think about it, if it's something that continues to deliver returns year over year. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I was going to get a little bit more pedantic about the formula, I would say that the value that you divide by 10 should be annualized return. So like estimated annualized return for a thing. So if you get a rough idea that the thing that you're going to build for them is going to roughly correspond to, say, uh, a customer service representative's annual income because it's going to increase capacity by approximately one CSR, let's say, then it's, you know, and and if you can roughly estimate that their annual salary is, say, $50,000, then it would be easy to charge $5,000 for the thing. If $5,000 is lower than your cost, then you're going to have, you probably shouldn't bid it or at least figure out your cost and, and bid it at that. I'd say it's 10000 But if you're right about the value, then they'll probably just say no, that you're too expensive. So how do you figure a cost, especially if you're a solo developer? Sure. Cost is weird because, you know, we're not buying two by fours. So right. it's it's usually not a an actual financial outlay, although sometimes it is. You might buy a, a plugin or a library that's not open source for a particular project, but that's pretty rare. The, the way I define cost is it's the least amount of money that I would take to do the job. Okay. It's right where my ROI turns negative. And it's obviously gut instinct because it takes into consideration your time, the risk, the stress, it takes into consideration how busy you are with other work. You know, there are all these things. It's like, this just, it's just not worth it to me to take this project for less than X. That's your cost. And it's the inverse of the client's value. And the, the, the client might not be able to calculate, you know, exactly what their ROI is going to be. In most cases, they can't. But there will be a point where their subconscious senses that they're crossing from positive to negative ROI. And that's what the value is. One other thing about cost for the developer is that developers tend to ignore their time as a cost. Mm-hmm. So they'll sell, uh, you know, a $150,000 website build and they're all excited because, oh, wow, like, you know, I'm going to be getting 150 grand. It should only take me about six months. And they, they're not considering their time as a cost. So that's, let's call that a high revenue project. It's not a high profit project because if you imagine, if you just, as a mental exercise, imagine that you hired out all of the dev work and you just did project management. You probably end up with like 25K or maybe 50K for six months of work, which is, in my opinion, is low ROI. When you could do something instead where you just do like a roadmap or a system architecture or something like that that you can finish in a week and get $10,000 for. Very low risk, very high return for the customer and for you. Uh, much more, it's better for everyone because the cost is super low, the value is super high, and it's really easy to find a price that's floating in the, the middle of those two numbers. Yeah, I mean, just an observation that I, I think a lot of newer business owners think of their available time as like 40 or 60 or whatever amount of mm-hmm. hours per week they decide they want to work, and they're not factoring in stuff like marketing time, mm-hmm. you know, working on the business time. And I think that can kind of distort the numbers when people do that internal calculation about what their cost is. Yeah, it makes it even worse. You, you kind of mentioned, um, or you sort of, you weren't hinting at this, but I was thinking it. <laughs> what about the uh, agency situation where you've got a lot of fixed costs in terms of payroll, maybe mm-hmm. office building or, you know, you, you've got fixed costs. Can this value pricing model work for that situation? 
Absolutely. It's easy to say, yes, it could. And you just increase your fees to, you know, double or triple what you're currently charging. So instead Mm -hmm. of, so if you view your current costs, which you do have much harder fixed costs in this, in a situation like this, what you need to do is stop billing yourself out by the hour, stop thinking about it by the hour and think about it by the value of the projects. You just, you just, it changes the way you pitch a project. So say a project comes in and they say, Hey, we want you guys to rebuild our website. Normally they would say, and they would say, what's your hourly rate? You say, oh, our rate's 175 uh, an hour for lead dev. Maybe they've got different rates for lower uh, junior devs. Maybe they've got different rates for project management and account services. And everybody feels like all of this stuff is very concrete and laid out and there's spreadsheets all over the place. When really all these numbers are just people just pulled out of thin air basically. You know, they, they look at other similar agencies that they feel are similar to them and they set their hourly rates kind of based on market rates for these things, adjusted up or down based on their ego. And then you multiply it all out, it feels like there's a formula there and, it, you know, they take that cost and they mark it up and they say, this is how much we estimate the project will take. It's really hard for an agency to break that thinking because the hourly model is so baked into their DNA, like through and through. It's in the culture. Yeah. It's in the tax code. It's everywhere. It's in project management degrees. It's hourly is everywhere. It's just polluted the entire landscape. So it's hard to people for people to envision this, but it, it's not that hard to do. When the job comes in, you you say, well, they say, you know, we need you to build this website for us. What's your hourly rate? And you say, well, we don't have an hourly rate, but let's talk about why you want this website built because it might not be the best solution to your situation. So let's talk about why you want it. And you get into this thing where you drill down, just like I said before. And at the end of it, if you believe that you are uniquely qualified to solve this problem and you've kind of tried to talk the client out of hiring you because you're too expensive for them, then throughout the phone call, they will be convincing you that you should work with them. Hmm. So they, while they're doing that, they're talking themselves into hiring you. So at the end of the day, you can say, all right, well, I think we've established the value. You called us because you know we're capable of doing this. After we've had this phone call, you trust us even more. And you know, we can, and then you can send them a, a value price proposal that would be two or three times higher than what they would have sent out you know, as an hourly estimate. So the, the thing with agencies, though, is the stakes are much higher because they do have monthly payroll. But from a theoretical standpoint, from my ivory tower... <laughs> I look down and see, because the next question that you maybe are getting ready to ask, and this is the one I always get, is, well, how do we know if our developers or, you know, our employees are profitable? How do we know which ones are profitable? And I'm like, because at the end of the year, you see how much you sent out, put out, and how much you put in, and did you make money or did you lose money? And the notion of assuming that every hour is equal and every hour only went to the specific project that somebody's on and that there's no cross-pollination between uh, people working on different projects, it's just, it's just nonsense. Hmm. Anybody running an agency probably just shut the podcast off because they're like, no, but, and yes, it's ivory tower. And yes, it's easier said than done, but it's the reality. It's like, you shouldn't be measuring your productivity or your profitability on an hourly basis. It doesn't make sense. Hmm. No further questions, your honor. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's what that was. Number one. (laughs) Cool. Okay. So let's trim the tables, put Philip on the hot seat. So question number one for Philip of the Mentee FAQs is, how do I specialize? Excellent question. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I actually asked my list today to give me a nickname. I've been known as the positioning OG. Um, So I wrote a book about positioning (laughs) and 
you know, within the pages of that book, it's very simple, right? It's like you choose some way to focus your services, narrow down your services that increases the value you can deliver to clients. Uh, we all live happily ever after. In reality, <laughs> people come to me in all sorts of forms uh, through email questions or the context of my mentoring program. And, you know, the, the reality is more complex. There's like the situation where someone has five, ten uh, previous verticals that they've worked in or different types of projects they've done. And they're like, they're all great or they're all terrible is <laughs> the other sort of flip side of that coin. Mm -hmm. And so it makes things kind of difficult. But I do find there's some patterns. One is that people start out this uh, – so they, they come to the idea of narrowing their focus and, and going after a better market position. They like the idea. And then they're kind of in one of two buckets. One is they have a hypothesis about how they might deliver more value. And their hypothesis might be something like, you know, I really – I see this problem. It comes up over and over again. Internet of – I've got a good example. Uh, a guy that I'm just starting to work with does Internet of Things related software development. And there's not a lot of expertise out there about that despite, you know, this being a thing that's happening on a very large scale. So that would be a hypothesis. I believe that a specialist in developing software for IoT devices would deliver more value than, you know, a generalist or or the alternative, right? So if you have a hypothesis, you have something you can test. But if you don't have a hypothesis, then you're in that other bucket. And you're you're sort of like, I don't know. I love the idea of narrowing down, but I don't even know where to begin. And my uh, prescription for both of those is basically the same. It makes a lot of people really uncomfortable, uh, rightly so. It's not easy, but I recommend that people do uh, what are called customer development interviews. Mm -hmm. And you can do a certain amount of research online, I believe, to sort of orient yourself. Like, you know, it, it's pretty obvious from doing research online that some industries are growing. Some industries have a lot of questions and, and need expertise, and the expertise is in short supply. And that's good. That's a start. But I think you don't really find out what's a good low-risk way to specialize your business without talking to potential clients and just doing short little interviews with them. So if you're in that, I don't have a hypothesis bucket, you're asking questions like, so tell me about what projects you're responsible for and kind of trying to understand like a whole industry segment at a much better level than you probably do. And I would be a little bit provocative here and say that if you can't like draw your client's business model on the back of a napkin and come up with some pretty realistic numbers about stuff like profit margin and, you know, expense structure and, and that kind of thing, then you don't understand their business well enough. And if you do understand your business well enough, a ton of stuff becomes obvious, right? Like you start to understand the levers that you as a freelancer, as a developer can pull to manipulate their business and make it better. Before you go on, can you think of an example that could kind of instantiate that for people? Well, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll use myself as an example. I don't mind being a, okay. a little vulnerable. Like I, <laughs> some time ago, decided that I was going to focus on custom software development shops, right? Because I have a technical background myself. It just sort of made sense. Like it was, I don't want to say convenient, but it was kind of a low-hanging fruit, right? To be honest, I did not understand their business model well enough to to understand where they spend money and what their their margins are 
I you know, took it upon myself to start finding out, and, and I'm using the exact methodology I prescribe for my mentoring students, doing just short 15, 20-minute interviews, talking to development shop owners, you know, to whatever extent they're comfortable sharing these details. Like, I need to know what is a lead worth to them? What is the profit margin on a $200,000 development project? If you charge $100 an hour and you have 10 employees, what does that mean in terms of, you know, your payroll each month and all of that? Like, again, I don't think that unless you know that level of detail about your client's business, you know enough about them. Right. I got you. So can you give people a little bit of a taste of how you reach out to people who maybe maybe you don't know that many software developers like what are the approaches that you use to set those up and and i think you mentioned that you do it over the phone is that true or skype yeah i mean some kind of voice conversation yeah real-time voice conversation however you can do that i guess you could use uh you know snapchat <laughs> anyway there's a couple ways you can do it most people's uh network is is bigger than they realize so i recommend starting there Actually, I recommend practicing with like previous clients first or current clients even. If you can frame it correctly, you need to get better than you probably are at uh, asking questions, shutting up and listening for the answer and kind of looking for patterns across multiple interviews. So cold email is one way that you can set up interviews with people. You can kind of ping your existing network. You can talk to current and previous clients. Those are sort of the three common go-tos. And the one thing I just find myself saying over and over again is you will be surprised how willing people are to help you. Most people who have some kind of difficult job, which pretty much everybody in management does, and, and that's often the case that you're talking to people who are in a management role when you're trying to understand a business, their you know romantic partner, their spouse, whatever, has long ago gotten tired of hearing them talk about their work. <laughs> so if they can talk to someone who... They're convinced is not trying to sell them something who actually cares about it and might be able to help. They'll talk your ear off. It's amazing. They'll tell you stuff you just can't imagine that uh, is not covered by some NDA, but they'll tell you anyway. Not that I'm saying you should, you know, misuse that information. I'm just saying you'll be surprised by how willing people are to help. And so to try to tie this back to the question I'm uh, loosely answering here, how do you specialize? That's like step one. You understand the business really well. And then um, I know this sounds a little bit like, you know, draw two circles and then draw the rest of the owl. <laughs> but <laughs> once you have that information, it's obvious what where the overlap is between your skills and how to make a difference for that business. And it mm. turns out that most businesses are, you know, there's a certain level of irrationality in any aspect of human endeavor, but most businesses are pretty rational about, rational about where they spend their money. And that ties back into the value question, right? If they see value, they will invest. Or if they see an opportunity to dramatically save, they will often invest. Mm -hmm. And if that's where you can focus and specialize, a lot of things get easier. I feel like there's a, a sticking point, at least I know it, it comes up pretty regularly with my students, is that with new ones, they don't even know which vertical, like, so there, there are a couple different ways to specialize. Yeah. Horizontal, vertical, demographic, and others, mm -hmm. platform, et cetera, et cetera. And I know from previous conversations that you advocate that people start with a vertical specialization because it's, for many reasons, it's the easiest. Yeah, if you're coming from like a total generalist position, that's the easiest because like you have 
I don't know, it's like making a tortilla, right? You need like flour and one other ingredient to make a tortilla, maybe maybe <laughs> three. But anyway, you've got the one ingredient, which is your expertise. You're adding mm-hmm. the missing ingredient, which is some sort of focus. So yeah, mm-hmm. that, that is why I recommend that. Okay. So my experience, I feel the same way. My experience with asking someone to even pick one is that they don't even know where to start with what to pick. Never right. mind finding the problem once they, you know, they can't do interviews until they pick who they're going to interview. Right. So do you have some help you could offer to people about how to pick one? I'm afraid I do. <laughs> coffee would have been a better example. You have coffee beans, you don't have coffee. You have water, you don't have coffee. <laughs> you have coffee beans and water, you can make coffee. There you anyway, go. yeah, I do. Uh, the example, or the, there's a couple shortcuts. You need a couple things to be successful running a professional services business. Of course, you need your expertise. You also need access to clients. You need proof that you can deliver some kind of results. You can get by without a lot of proof, but it it definitely diminishes your your ability to charge higher rates when you're lacking that proof. So I would I look advise people to kind of inventory where they're at now. Where do you have access to potential clients? And by the way, that doesn't have to be in your quote unquote professional network, but Access really helps. It's it's a huge factor. And then proof. Uh, if you have some existing proof that you can kind of build on, like, okay, we did these two or three projects and uh, the results were good. And there's something about those that we can apply to some market vertical. That makes a, a sensible starting point. Because without those two things, access and proof, you're really kind of starting from scratch. And that makes it harder. That's like playing it on hard mode. So those are sort of my shortcuts. And sometimes people say, yep, you know, I just hate all my previous clients. I I don't want anything to do with them and I'm willing to start over. And if that's, you know, if you you have that, that's fine. If you have that willingness to start over, uh, but just know what you're getting into. Mm. I don't know how long we want to talk on this particular one, but let's... This will for be the my rest last. of the show, forever. Yeah. No, I'm <laughs> kidding. <laughs> this is foundational, so yeah. it's pretty important. But this will be my last follow-up question on it. How do you validate that a vertical is big enough to support your business? You don't. You validate that it's small enough to make an impact. <laughs> nice. That's a mistake I made in, in the first uh, edition of the positioning manual. The second version's coming out real soon. I kind of was coming at that question the same way you phrased it. And maybe your phrasing was accidental. I don't know. But that's how I thought of it is, is it big enough? You know, can you find enough clients? Now, if you are a 50, 100-person head development shop, yes, that is the right question to ask. And yes, you should probably be looking to try to dominate the startup space or the enterprise space. But if you're like a lot of people I help, which are very much on the smaller end, 10 clients could be a fantastic year for you. 10 could be an overwhelming number of clients. Yeah, that's that's me. And not, like I, I have maybe four, five there's, a year. There's tops. a lot of people like that. Mm. So if that is your uh, scale that you're operating at, the question is more often, is, is the market small enough that you can sort of be everywhere on their radar? You know, they are being uh, the people who would make decisions about hiring you or recommend you. Is it small enough that you can become a dominant player in a year or two or three? The, to me, that's the question people should be asking. And that tends to be a shockingly small market. <laughs> you know, Jonathan, you've brought it before privately, the uh, the bulldozer or sorry, the forklift repair company invoice checking company. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I love yes. that example. It's so weird. And it's, they were, I mean, I don't, it's been a long time, but they had a number of employees and they were doing 
over a million a year for sure. Like probably 10 times that. They had huge clients. They did this one weird little thing and they were wildly successful. Which was what? Uh, assessing forklift repair invoices for accuracy? Is that the? They're actually, they're actually called fork trucks, fellow. Oh, okay. And we'll make that mistake yes, again. <laughs> yes. Every, everyone, everyone else calls them forklifts. They're yeah. those little like electric or propane trucks that drive around a warehouse at, you know, UPS or whatever. And they break down a lot and they're heavy, very heavy. So you don't want to transport them very far. So you kind of have to take them to the nearest repair place or you have the nearest repair place come and service them. And the nearest repair place kind of knows that they've got UPS over a barrel because they've got a fleet of 300 fork trucks and they are the only fork truck repair place in the Kentucky area (laughs) or whatever. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, this client that I worked for, they would get hired by UPS, for example, who, you know, somebody who has a big fleet of fork trucks and they would send the invoices to my client to review, to call BS on absurd charges. And, you know, so it was like a clear cost savings and it was very common for them to get a 50% reduction of, of an invoice. And these were not small invoices and there were quite a few of them. So it was a booming business. There was, this is going back a decade or more. This is more than a decade. So I don't yeah. even know if they're still in business, but I, I suspect that they are. It's a great example of a market that's small enough that one or two companies can become the dominant players. Anyway, I, I wanted you to tell that story because it's such a great, vivid example. So I'm not trying to simplify, oversimplify this. I'm not saying there's not risk in going for a small market. But if you do your research and uh, you do a couple other things right, I think that's the, the mindset that people should adopt is, is it small enough? That's awesome. Okay, well, let's uh, let me see what your next question is. How about we stick with money here? Uh, I'm mm-hmm. going to go out of order if you don't mind. Sure. How do you get paid 100% upfront, especially when you're charging amounts for a project that are bigger than you've ever charged before because you're now pricing things differently? Right. Great question. <laughs> <laughs> that should be the title of the episode. <laughs> People are often shocked to hear that I send out every proposal I send out. The payment terms virtually always have three options of incremental price, you know, so it'd be like option one, option two, option three, sort of small, medium, large, or, you know, bronze, silver, gold, whatever you want. And, you know, and then I go on to say that the, uh, in order to put this project in my schedule, I need a hundred percent payment upfront. And this is a quote, not an estimate. And the proposal expires in 14 days or whatever. So people, when I tell this to developers, their eyes kind of pop out of their heads because I think for a few reasons. One is that anybody who's billing by the hour, it's almost other than the rare case where someone is is selling blocks of hours in advance, which is which is rare. They are used to tracking their hours and then billing in arrears on a weekly, biweekly or monthly basis. So the whole concept of billing in advance is actually impossible in that model, really. Mm-hmm. because you haven't given a price. You've only given an estimate. So there's, it's like basically impossible to say, you know, send the check here and I'll get started. I mean, all you could do is what attorneys sometimes do, which is the attorney version of a retainer. Basically, mm-hmm. make a deposit against future hours billed. Right. 
which to me is just rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. It's just making the risk even worse for the client, yeah. which is the thing that value billing does is it, it decreases the risk for the client, but it increases the risk for you. But then you are paid handsomely for shouldering that risk. And I think it makes sense if we're selling ourselves as experts for the experts to shoulder the risk and not, you know, the doctor should shoulder some risk over his diagnosis, which is the case in the medical profession. How come it's not that way in the consulting profession? Hmm. So, you know, that's a separate story. But if you did provide a fixed bid, whatever you base the price on, whether it's value or time and materials or cost plus, you can ask for 100% upfront because you're giving them an actual price. This is how much it's going to cost full stop. So I want it all first. And what you're doing there is you're giving yourself something to negotiate other than your fees. So when you send that out to someone, First of all, if you've done a good job in the steps that lead up to this moment, which are being well known as an authority in the space, you're the go-to person for the thing that you do. So you've, you've done your marketing, you've picked a focus, you've done your marketing, you're out there, you're attracting clients, you are pushing back on the clients, making them convince you to work with them instead of the other way around. By the time you get to the proposal, they're basically sold. They just want to see how much it's going to cost. So they get down to the very end of the proposal and it says option one is $10,000, option two is $22,000, option three is $50,000. And it's due 100% in advance. If you've done a good job up to this point, one of those prices will seem reasonable. And in my experience, 75 to 85% of the people will just send you a check for the full amount. Sometimes people will say, whoa, 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 we don't pay 100% up front. We've never done that. You know, you can imagine the pushback that you might get. Yeah. But a surprise, I want to emphasize a surprising number of people do not do that hmm. because you're committing to, the, to an amount. And that is so refreshing and different compared to the abject fear that they experience when they are basically making a huge purchasing decision without knowing the final price. So since you are giving them and committing to a final price for a project, they are much more relaxed than you might think (laughs) or than they normally would be. So they're open to this concept of like, that's cool. Like we've talked about the value. This is a fraction of what we're going to get out of it. So even if it doesn't go perfectly, we'll still be making, you know, five bucks for every dollar we give to Stark. So, okay, great. Here's your check. Now, if they don't, they they usually come back with this. They'll say, how about 50% upfront and 50% on delivery? And my response to that is, now this is for software projects, you know, so a website build or some sort of, you're creating an API for somebody. So a collaborative enterprise that you're going to go back and forth with the customer. My response to them is always similar. It's like, I don't think sign off is good for you. So if we, if we pick, uh, you know, if we say 50% is due on sign off, on deliver, whatever the delivery is, then it's going to put pressure on everyone to sign off on the project. And after sign off, the project is over financially. And anything that happens after sign off is going to be a new project or some maintenance or whatever it is, but it'd be more money. And I don't want to do that because that kind of leaves the customer high and dry. And as the expert, I know that there's no such thing as a software project that's perfect at sign off. It never happens. There's always some kind of weird corner case or some quarterly reporting bug that only happens on odd numbered years or whatever. But there's something that's not working and we didn't find it in QA or maybe the customer did a terrible job at QA. As everybody knows, they tend to do. So what I say to the customer, what I would rather do is 50% up front and then 50% in 
date. And I'll either say 30 days or 45 days or 90 days, depending on how big the project is. And then they'll usually say, okay, that seems fair. Cause they're like, you know, okay, 50% up front and then 50% in 90 days. And in their minds, they're thinking, ah, the project will probably be done in 90 days anyway. Uh, but they feel like, well, you know, we'll know if how, you know, if things aren't going well or something, I don't know what the logic is that they do in their heads there because it's kind of irrational, but they feel like you've made a concession and that usually works in the sliver of cases where that doesn't work and they're still pushed back and they say, no, 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 we want it to be on sign off. I'll say, I, I cannot, I'm not going to impose a sign off on you guys. I'm going to keep working on this until you're hundred percent happy with it. So you pick the date. I don't care what the date is. You pick any date you want. Anything you think is reasonable, that's fine with me. And you can send the 50% check here and we can get started on Tuesday or whatever. So there's sort of three layers and they're drastically decreasing, you know, sort of reverse bell curve. Like most people will just give you 100% up front. A fraction of that will do it in two payments and a fraction of that second fraction will demand to pick their own date. And I have never had anybody not agree to one of those three options. And right. so the, the key thing there though is they're not debating the price <laughs> at mm-hmm. any point. And you can negotiate, you can have some give and take, you can compromise without compromising your price. And if you know everybody feels like they're getting a good deal and everyone's being reasonable and you can get started. And then once you do get started, you know, you can basically forget about finances. There's no issue of milestones, none of that. The finances are disconnected from the project itself. Yeah. And I I can see how that's really, really good because they can just be used as a club otherwise, either by vendor or client. Mm Mm-hmm. I wish we had Reuven here because he deals with the world's toughest negotiators. Um, <laughs> Israeli, the purchasing departments of Israeli companies are the toughest and most feared negotiators in the world, according to Reuven. I think he's probably right. Mm-hmm. Do you ever get that, though, that, uh, well, it's, it's just policy. We can't do that. It's, uh, you know, we, we got to pay you in 30 days or whatever. I'll tell you a story. Okay. So here's, I was dealing with a banking institution that everybody listening to this has heard of, like big. And they wanted me to come in and do something for them. And I said, okay, the price is going to be, I don't remember the price, but let's say it was $10,000 for a presentation. So I said, okay, I'll do, you know, we'll prepare, we'll do all that. We'll put it on the calendar. It'll be $10,000. And they said, uh, okay. And I said, and it'll be, it's due in advance. And they said, no, no way. This institution does not do that. You know, and they, they got, you know, I got forwarded up the chain to someone higher up to kind of like intimidate me or something. Uh-huh. And so I said, look, you know, I went through the explanation. I was like, look, the reason why I'm doing this is because a surprising number of times these things get canceled last minute and all of my work happens before delivery. All of my work happens before the day. So I'm not taking that risk. So I can either not do it or you can pay me hundred percent upfront. It's up to you. It's probably worth mentioning that negotiations have been, you know, not negotiations, but conversations have been going on for a long time. And this was leading up to an event that was approaching. Okay. So there was some deadline pressure on their side too. And so I said, they they were really standing firm. They were like, nope, 50% upfront and 50% on delivery. A quick clarification. Is this an email conversation or over the phone or both? Uh, it started over email and then it, and then it was over the phone. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So this, this sort of New York, it wasn't a New York lawyer, but you can imagine like I could see the three piece suit over the phone. You know, it was just like, <laughs> it was a little bit of an intimidation tactic for sure. Okay. 
But I just didn't care because I wasn't going to do it. It just wasn't worth it to me because I know what happens because when these big organizations that they get you on the hook and then you do the thing and now you're chasing some department, it doesn't even care. And the pressure is completely off the original buyer. And it's like the last thing on their to-do list. I'm just not doing it. Yeah. So he said, he said, look, I'll do you a favor. I'll do 50% up front and 50% on the day. And I said, well, if we do it like that, I'm going to increase my fee. Is that okay? And he said, sure. And I said, okay, my fee's 20000 So you pay me 10000 up front and 10000 more on the day, which is, of course, ridiculous because <laughs> that's 100% of the original payment. And Because he, yeah. he, was, he was setting policy. He's like, oh, we, we're, our system can't do uh, 100% up front payments. I said, okay, just double my fee and pay me 50% up front and 50% day of. And, and we sort of ended in a, a huff. Uh-huh. And they uh, sent me 100% up front of the original fee. How long did it take that to happen? Like after it was probably the next the, day. Okay, so so somebody mm-hmm. talked to somebody. There was no policy. No, there was just complete BS. Yeah, nice. And I knew I was talking to people at a level who could make things happen, even if it was policy. So it was like it was pure BS, and that that is easily by far the most. I'm not into doing stuff like that, but I just didn't care about the gig. So mm-hmm. yeah, I'm not like a chicken player or grandstanding or anything like that. I've got a streak of diva in me, but that's about it. <laughs> but that's the only situation I can think of where something like that has happened and they caved. So yep. You were willing to walk away. It sounds like, yeah, that's huge. Well, so I, did, we- I did not need the money, which is a, that's a key factor to a lot of this stuff actually. I know. Yeah. That's the thing. It's like, that's the trick to money is not needing it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, we are, I think we're out of time. We, I, I want to let folks know that we had five really good questions we did not get to. Mm. So maybe the next time the A team's not here, <laughs> <laughs> we'll come over we'll return to this. Keep these in our back pocket. So picks, I guess. Sure. Uh, how about you? Why don't you start? I've got two. First is going to be Philip Morgan's podcast on how to interview people. Since that came up today in uh, earlier on, uh, you were in one of your answers. Mm-hmm. I guess you only got to one answer. But did you call it business development or customer development? Yeah, customer development interviews. Yeah, so your episode on how to interview people and the, the one thing that you've never heard any, you know, one piece of interviewing advice you've never heard anyone else give is like my go-to link that I send to people who are, are doing this kind of customer development because it's really good. So folks are obviously podcast listeners, so you should check out the Consulting Pipeline podcast episode 18, I think. Sounds about right. <laughs> so, but you'll, uh, the title, we'll put it in the show notes. The title is a little bit unusual and I don't have it in front of me, but... Uh, so that's my first pick. And my other pick is a physical object, which is, uh, I think it's called a cord wrap or a cord bundle from Levenger, which is a kind of like a office supply notebook company. And it's this, it's like a leather. It looks like a sort of looks like my wife's purse kind of or her wallet rather. But it's this leather roll that has these snaps inside that you put all of your cables for your junk. So like your charging cables for your phone and my VGA dongle for the laptop and all of that stuff that I usually, I used to carry around in a Ziploc bag, (laughs) which was really embarrassing, but, um, I really needed them in something and I never found anything that was, that was sort of like professional. So I would go up to a speaking gig and pull my Ziploc, my crabbly old 
<laughs> Ziploc bag out of my messenger bag and pull out my wires. But this thing is really cool. I don't remember. I think it was it was relatively inexpensive, and it does a great job holding. Uh, mine has like spots for five charging cables and like a zipper thing where you could keep a pen or something, but I keep my uh, VGA dongles. So it's it's surprisingly nice, and I get comments on it all the time. So it, it like rolls up, uh, like yeah, a it ro- burrito. Yep, exactly like a burrito, and it's got like a it's got like a snap. It's great. I, I seriously, I get comments on it all the time. People are like, "Ooh, where'd you get that?" Nice, Philip picks. I have a pick. So context. I had this uh, so-so external RAID array, which had two mirrored hard drives. I used it to store photos and music and stuff like that, media basically. And the enclosure, by the way, I, I guess this is an anti-pick in a way. Uh, every RAID enclosure I've ever, I've ever gotten from OWC has had about a two-year lifespan, and then it just decides to start not working. And uh, this was no exception to that, unfortunately. So I needed to slim down and decided it was time to move some stuff that I rarely, if ever, not, not rarely, I, I don't think I'll ever need it, but I don't want to let go of it. Decided to move it to Amazon Glacier, and I found an app called the Freeze app, and it's an uploader. So it it specifically runs on uh, Mac OS, uploads files, and synchronizes folders, if you want, to an Amazon Glacier vault. And the thing was flawless. It was amazing. It uploaded uh, 500 gigabytes of photos and other stuff, just kind of sat there in the background uploading it. It's easy to pause and resume. It's, you know, uploads in small chunks. So if there's some kind of failure, you don't lose like two days worth of trying to upload that 100 gigabyte file. Mm. And it was really solid. I was impressed. Very affordable one-time purchase. So that's my pick for this week is the Freeze app. And I guess that's a show, huh? Mm-hmm. We'll we see, did we'll, it. See, we'll see if they they actually publish this one. I think they <laughs> will. <laughs> yeah. If not, we just started our own podcast. We've got the recording. Boom, got the pilot episode. So uh, that's it for this uh, episode of The Freelancer Show. Thanks for tuning in. See you next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.